Hello and welcome to Tops 10 brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. Tops 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics and government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities, and ask them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple. We ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them and to tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer-engineer, and I'm David Perlmutter, a professor at and dean of the college and the originator and host of Tops 10. Today I have with me a special friend, Mr. Jim Ferguson. Ferg, as he is known, is a graduate of our college and Texas Tech and is a true legend of the advertising business. Among the many, many highlights of his extensive resume are President and Chief Creative Officer, Young and Rubicom, New York, Vice Chairman and Chief Creative Officer, DDB, Dallas, SVP, Senior Vice President and Creative Director, Leo Burnett, Chicago. He also did many campaign commercials for George W. Bush and Mitt Romney. And Ferg is definitely somebody who almost everybody I've ever met in the advertising industry knows about or has met. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Dave. Now, Ferg, you've had, uh, and I'm calling you Ferg that's because right. that's what you like. Yeah. Where, did that originate from anything in particular or just a shortened part of your when name? You're, uh, when your name's Ferguson, you're usually called Ferg. That's right. Even my daughters have been dubbed Ferg. Child of Ferg. And the child of Ferg. Daughters daughter of Ferg. Daughter of Ferg. Now, we first met uh, a couple of months ago. You were in Dallas. You had uh, just gotten off a very exhausting job of uh, doing the television media for the Romney campaign, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a no one who is who hasn't worked on a presidential campaign has any idea of how brutal it is to be on a presidential campaign. We worked seven days a week, sometimes 16, 18 hours a day. I traveled all over the country to uh, shoot films. I've, I was in coal mines from Ohio to West Virginia, and uh, spent a lot of time on the road doing videos and uh, commercials. Yes, it is exhausting, and it uh, takes a toll on you. How many ads would you do in a typical week? You know, sometimes uh, we wouldn't uh, air that many, but we were always making ads to be tested for a communication standpoint. Sometimes we would make anywhere from four or five a day. And sometimes you're responding to, to something, either the news or an opponent's attack, so you have to get one out. I mean, you, okay. how, how, what's the fastest you could get out an ad I got and one on out, the air? I got one out in 45 minutes, but not on the air, basically on the Internet. I mean, the Internet changed yeah. everything. I worked on the Bush campaign in 2000 before the Internet had really taken off, and uh, we could respond and probably have them up as, uh, as fast as 30, 45 minutes. There used to be something we, we older folks refer to as the news cycle, mm-hmm. where news would occur, and whether it's policymakers or campaign planners, had a certain amount of time, like you know when the newspaper came out the next day, or, or even though a week for Time Magazine to come out to sort of respond or, or mm-hmm. react to events. Now it seems like the news cycle is like, well, you haven't said anything in 30 seconds. What's going on, you know? Well, it's immediate. I mean, the Internet changed it all. I mean, we had websites up to, you know, it was uh, about uh, President Obama, and um, we could uh, launch an attack or a counterattack within minutes. Of, uh, I did one with about Joe, uh, Vice President Biden one time. He made a comment about the Dell fireworkers had done just fine. And uh, it was probably the fastest response we had. And that uh, just so happened I'd been interviewing Dell fireworkers in Ohio. And we came back and said, no, oh, they did just fine. Did you talk to them? And then we uh, commenced to put up about you know a minute of their peop- uh, the Delphi workers talking about how they were lost their their pensions and everything else. So they it was a it was a good counterattack. But 
spent a lot of time looking at the internet, a lot of time looking at YouTube, finding uh, faux, you know gaffes or faux pas in their conversation, you know, in their conversations. Yeah, we were far, far off a salvo. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Haiku, Texas. Uh, not Haiku. No, it's not Haiku. Haiku, Texas. They get more Japanese tourists. <laughs> now we're the. Uh, we're the home of Billy the Kid, supposedly, but for the past month, I've been taking a very long uh, tour of the western United States. I've driven 7,000 miles, and I did come through Fort Sumner, which is the uh, the resting place, supposedly, of Billy the Kid, but, you know, people in Haiku do dispute that. What was the population of Haiku? When I grew up, about 600. And your graduating class in your high school, I think you told me, was 11? 11, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you were you in the top ten percent, or you stole my joke, David? No, I did not <laughs> oh, graduate no. in the top ten. <laughs> and uh, as I tell people, you know what? It, I was so lucky to get into Texas Tech back in 1971. Texas Tech changed my life, and uh, I love this university. And uh, my my uh, dear friend Jane Mills has a son, uh, Dakota, who's coming to hopefully he's coming to Texas Tech, and uh, hopefully he'll become a fight out like me. Well, we, we're trying to get uh, the best and the brightest and, and just lots of so many great kids here at Texas Tech. Now, when you were growing up, was there music in your house? Not in my house. My folks uh, did not listen to a lot of music. We, uh, we listened to a lot of music, my brother and I, and my, on the radio. You know, we listened to uh, KLIF in Dallas, and, uh, but it went off the air at, at sundown. So after sundown, we would uh, tune into QRXT out of uh, uh, Del Rio which was a Wolfman Jack station. We would listen to that station all night. So what we'd call classic rock today was the format or, or well, country? Classic or? rock was, we, we heard it. Then. I mean, it, it, was, was it wasn't music. classic. It wasn't classic. I mean, there were actual Greeks and Romans walking around uh, singing it. No, right, classic so, yeah, rock yeah. would have been, uh, for our generation or my generation, uh, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, yeah. people like that. The 50s music was classic. Yeah. What we were listening to in the late 60s, early 70s was just great music greatest music generation of, our, of any time. We are the greatest generation when it came to music. Not, not much else, I would say, but, no, but, uh, but music, we, we, got, we got music, that's yeah. right. Uh, the first song that you listed was, of course, the, uh, a great uh, tune, like all the ones you've listed, but uh, probably one of the most famous done by uh, Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, and you were talking about uh, his album, Folsom Prison Blues, and hearing that, and Ring of Fire. Yeah, I love Ring of Fire. It's a... Uh, and I read about that song years later when he, Johnny supposedly, you know, that was written by June Carter. And he put the, uh, and he had a dream one night about the uh, the uh, trumpets in the background. Do, 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 do. I mean, that just made that album. And I remember singing that as a kid, and I actually sang it at my daughter's wedding. And uh, it's one of Jane's favorite songs, and I enjoy singing that to her. Was Johnny Cash to you when you, this is your teens, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Was he... The epitome of cool. I mean, oh God, between him and Waylon Jennings, they had. I wasn't old. I'm a little bit younger than you, so I wasn't old enough to sort of. Yeah, I'm 50 years younger than you. I think 50 years younger than I am. That's right. Yeah, as you can tell. But you know, I was. I was. I sort of late 80s was my music. But and I remember Johnny Cash as being sort of an established artist. But did you encounter him as he was rising? You know what? He was already a star. I mean, he was singing those songs back in the 50s. Johnny Cash was a rocker. I mean, just like Conway Twitty was a rocker. Uh, Waylon Jennings was, a, you know, they came up through that generation. They were being, they were, they were, everybody was looking for the next uh, Elvis Presley. And Johnny Cash toured with Elvis Presley, and uh, I'd read all about him. And uh, I had the chance to meet Johnny Cash back in the uh, early, probably about 2004. I had a friend, David, the Belafonis, David Belafonte. And uh, he asked me to come down to uh, uh, their home in um, 
Aruba or somewhere like that. It was down in the Caribbean, and he, I couldn't go. I had a commitment to my kids. And he came back and said, man, you would have loved being down there. We had dinner one night with Johnny and June. And I said, Johnny and June? You mean Johnny Cash and June you know, Carter? Yeah. And uh, I missed the opportunity to have dinner with Johnny and June. I regret that. I, I would, too, yeah. Let's <laughs> let him sing a little bit, too. That's right. Love is a burning thing, and it makes a fiery ring. Bound by wild desire, I fell into a ring of fire. Love is a burning thing, and it makes a fiery ring. Bound by wild desire, I fell into a ring of fire. I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire. Well, I think you could start a tribute band just tomorrow if you want to quit your day job. That's, that's, that's <laughs> I don't have perfect. a day job. <laughs> I'm a writer. Yeah, we I have a day well, and night job. Well, you know, job. you brought that up in some of our conversations, Ferg, about how what ties together a lot of the songs we're going to be talking about, including Ring of Fire, is that they were very well written. They were very clever lyrics, very very precise use of language, which country music, country rock, but, yes. but country music especially yeah. is known as a lyric-driven yes. music. That is, it's really important to tell a story. It often tells a story. Yes. There's often a denouement. There's like a, a third act, you know, yes. a, even a surprise at the end. It's more storytelling than many other kinds of genres. Well, you know, one of my favorite lyrics is by Merle Haggard when he sang uh, Mama Tried, and the first lyric is, I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. I think that's a pretty good start of a song, and you've got to listen to the rest of it. You know, Mama and Johnny Cash was full of that. Oh, you know. country lyrics, as a writer, I would go back and listen to, and I'm just amazed by the catchphrases, you know. You know, I gave her the ring, she gave me the finger was one of my favorites, you know, from the gutter to you isn't up. I mean, I used to keep a whole list of those great uh, the, lyrics. Uh, I remember from a boy named Sue, the mud and the blood and the beer. Kicking in the gouge in the mud and the blood and the beer. There we go. Now, you were sitting there with your brother listening to the radio. What kind of radio was it? You know, my first pick, my first vehicle, my brother and I bought a 1949 Dodge pickup for $165, and uh, we paid $82.50 apiece. I still have the canceled check. We took that old pickup behind the barn and painted it baby blue with a brush. But inside that was a radio, and we would, uh, when we'd work out in the field with my dad or whatever, we would uh, turn that radio on, open the doors, and listen all day. This is AM radio. Yes, and uh, that's where I also fell in love with Texas Tech, was listening to the football game zone Saturday afternoon with my dad and listened to Connie Alexander high atop beautiful Jones Stadium in downtown Lubbock, Texas, you know, and... I listened to Donnie Anderson and these great football players. And One of the other folks that you listed for us is the great Buck Owen, Sweet Rosie Jones. You know what? I listened to that song at the, the Coffee Cup Cafe in Heiko, and uh, 
they had a jukebox there. I must have put, I pumped so many quarters in that song to listen to Buck Owens and those great songs. But uh, again, like you were talking about, David, the, the lyrics, it starts out talking, I met her out in Oklahoma down wild where the old Red River flows. I mean, it's a beautiful love song and the, I vowed my love to her forever. Her, she's a sweet, sweet Rosie, my sweet, sweet Rosie Jones. I met her out in Oklahoma down where the old red river flows I vowed my love to her forever she was my sweet sweet Rosie Jones we walked along Just as the sun was sinking low And in her eyes I saw big trouble Like the muddy waters down below Her lips were soft Sweet as honey Her hair was bright As yellow gold Her cheeks were red As summer roses She was my sweet, sweet rose now, at some point, did you uh, notice that girls like to listen to music, too, and there might be some uh, possibility of uh, attracting their attention by music Uh-oh, as well? Uh, I wouldn't know that, David. You're turning red, Ferg. Is there a story here that I need to hear? <laughs> There's a, I had a very special person in my life when I was a teenager, and I still remember, uh, yeah, making out. We'd sit in front of that old pickup, and we would, we would make out for hours uh, over the radio. And uh, What was the best make-out song in uh, 19? The best make-out song that I remember that I still was uh, Manfred Mann, and it was, uh, I don't know why I still remember that song. It's called the uh, Quinn the Eskimo. <laughs> Everybody's gonna jump for joy. I make that connection between Quinn the Eskimo and Susan Knutson and making out when I was, we'd make out for hours, it seems like. Music became a uh, utility device at, at that point. Uh, it was yeah. a background for your your life. But you also listed 
a song that that I had heard only maybe about five years ago, and it occurred to me it was again one of these incredibly well written story songs. George Jones, he stopped loving her today, and I won't give it away, but there is a sort of surprise ending yes. to the song because you think the song is about one thing, yeah. and then you find out it's about something completely different. And you know, George Jones is the greatest singer of all time. I love Johnny Cash, but that song is considered to be the greatest country song of all time. I've uh, been very fortunate to become friends with a man named Larry Bastian, who is a songwriter, Songwriter Hall of Fame, and he and I have talked about the structure of that song because it's unlike anything you've ever heard. It's not rhymey. It's not a... You don't know where it's got, what's going to happen in the last lyric when you realize he stopped, why he stopped loving her today. It's just a beautiful song, and it's one of those I can sing every word of, and if that song comes on the radio, I cannot turn the radio dial. It's so beautiful. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget in time As the years went slowly by She still prayed upon his mind He kept her picture on his wall Went half crazy now and then But he still loved her through it all Hoping she'd come back again Kept some letters by his bed Late in 1962 He had underlined in red Every single I love you I went to see him just today Oh, but I didn't see no tears All dressed up to go away First time I'd seen him smile in years He stopped loving her today It placed a reef upon his door And soon Stop loving her today You know, she came to see him one last time Oh, and we all wondered if she would And it kept running through my mind This time He's over her for good He stopped loving her today It placed a reef upon his door And soon they'll carry him away He stopped loving her today
when you were a teenager, you told me, and, and I remember this, I remember the advertisements for the Columbia Record Club, mm-hmm. that you'd subscribe and you'd get four <laughs> record albums a month or something, and, yeah. and oh. stuff that you'd never heard of, or, or stuff that was very you know, current, yeah. and it was a big deal in my life in the late mm-hmm. 70s, uh, early 80s, and you and your brother subscribed to, to was it Columbia Record Club? We we got, um, Parade Magazine, every Sunday used to, you could join a record club, you get like eight records for 99 cents, and but you had to make a commitment to buy like four records a, a year. Well, they would mail them to you every month, and you know, you'd never mail, mail them back, and then you'd get that bill, I remember we were probably $20, $25 down, and that was a lot of money for us. I mean, we were making about 25 an hour in a, an album, so I didn't collect a lot of albums, quite frankly. I just didn't have the money. You'd go get an album for 4 or $5. That's, that was almost three, half a day's work. And uh, we were not going to spend our, you know, we'd listen to it on the radio. Every now and then we would buy an album. The record club, I think they came after. I think they're still harassing me. <laughs> well, was one, one of the records you mentioned was also one that, that I guess changed the history of, of music. Uh, the Beatles, yeah, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Man. You know, I've talked to so many musicians over the over the years that I've worked with. Tom Mooney, great musicians like that, and every everybody has from that generation remembers the first time they heard that album. The whole album was it was phenomenal. Every song is a classic. The Beatles, I mean, the Stones, I mean, every group, the Doors at that time were just doing outrageously creative things and uh, changed your life. When I first heard that, I was really astonished because it was the first time I, I paid attention to production values mm-hmm. of multiple tracks. I mean, there's been a lot of that going on already with songs. You know, was it you know the wall of sound and oh, things yeah. like that? So that I sort of got it vaguely. You know, they'd have a background singer, and I'd read some article somewhere about you know sometimes they weren't weren't in the studio at the same time, mm-hmm. but they were recording. But that was the first time where I actually listened. Go, my God! You know, they must have spent months. Mm-hmm. on everything to get it just right that level of complexity and of course that's part of an advertisement in the commercial as mm-hmm. well uh, whether political or, or, or for a company that you've got to get those all levels of production value at the maximum level right people don't understand what a production value is but they know it when they see it when i was a kid i remember watching bonanza and they'd ride the horses in to this tv and 
I'd look and go, well, something's wrong there. Well, they were on a set. You know, my favorite movie is The Searchers. I can still look and see when Ethan and they were on a set. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it didn't look right. Speaking of Sgt. Pepper, there were years ago when I was in New York that I, did, I had dinner with George Martin, who was their producer, the Beatles producer, and he was telling the same thing, how John Lennon would come in with just a, an idea. He would have to make it happen, and uh, the production values. and. I remember the first time I ever heard uh, Paul McCartney played all the instruments and did all the, you know, with his, how did he do that? How could he play all the instruments and do all the tracks for every, I think it was one of his first albums after he'd left the Beatles. Those were wonderful times, you know, now it's, we take that for granted. Then it was, it was amazing. Then the other great parallel group, uh, the Rolling Stones. I guess that the Rolling Stones, I, I remember, it's funny to think now where they do concerts where, you know, grandmas and oh, yeah. granddaughters are there, you know, and like school outings or something. But once upon a time, they were bad boys. They were bad boys. You know, I just finished Keith Richards' book probably last year, Life, and he really got into that, and it was an amazing book. They were the bad boys. And I he's mean, still alive. He's still one, one of the great miracles of <laughs> Well, that's what he says science. in his book. His proudest accomplishment, he was on the uh, most likely to die year, 10 times in, the, in a row, 10 well, years in a Well, there was some story that every <laughs> music magazine had a Keith Richards obituary you know (laughs) they've had one for 50 years oh yeah just ready to run you know (laughs) when i was a newspaper writer that's we used to do that we used to write obituaries Uh, when we didn't have anything to do we'd start writing an obituary for somebody you know because you know you had to be ready you wanted to be be able to go up fast so but keith richards it's a good story and I, i love the stones not as much as the beatles i mean in my generation you were a stones guy you were a beatles guy you were Elvis guy you were a beatles guy who were you and then what who was your favorite Beatle? Mine was John Lennon, of course. Change of pace. You also mentioned uh, you have a very eclectic, uh, widespread taste. Sitting on the dock of the bay by Otis Redding, the R and B world. Did, did that? I'm guessing in rural Texas, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of exposure to R and B on no. the radio. There wasn't uh, not a lot, but I really started loving R and B, and I really get the uh, Al Green eventually became one of my favorite artists. Uh, Aretha Franklin. Uh, you know, they were. It was hard to find R and B records, quite frankly. And if you found them, you know, it was pretty much, you know, Otis Redding, people like that. But yeah, I, I, I still love R&B and I love the blues. The San Jane has really tried to get, her father was a, had a radio show. Donald Mills had a radio show in Columbus, Ohio about jazz music every Sunday night. I wish I got more into jazz. It's something I don't understand, but I wish I did. And I guess in terms of lessons for your later work, which we're going to talk about in a moment, the, the different kinds of music that are appropriate to different situations, mm-hmm. the use of music to elicit emotions or, or feelings, 
in, again, from different vantage points in different situations, that, that was part of what you were observing mm-hmm. and hearing, right? Well, you know what? We, uh, I was very lucky when I was working at Leo Burnett. It was the first time I was able to work with music producers that would take your commercial and then add something to it. And usually it was a, it was a great piece of music. A great piece of music can change the mood of everything. I did a Sony commercial about a soldier going off to war and right before... Uh, we got involved in Afghanistan. It was a beautiful commercial, and the song uh, we used was a, it was a Christmas song by Robert Downey Jr. that we used. We got Robert Downey Jr. to come in and play the piano. I'd actually heard him do that on uh, the show Ally McBill, and I thought it'd be a beautiful track, and I really can't remember the name of it right now, but it was a Christmas song. Uh, turned out to be Joe Pitka, the great director, shot the thing, and when we put it together, it was a tearjerker. I mean, with his singing and with those beautiful images Joe produced, and I'm very proud of that. Very, very, very proud of the the Sony commercial. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I'll watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay Cause I've had nothing to live for Look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Look like nothing's gonna change Everything still remains the same I can't do what ten people tell me to do So I guess I'll remain the same Sitting here resting my bones And this loneliness won't leave me alone Two thousand miles I roam Just to make this dock my home Now I'm just gonna sit at the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Now you did go to Texas Tech University. I did get those guns up. Did you know what you wanted to be? Did you know what you wanted to major in? Was there already a, a passion for images and sound and telling stories? I knew from I was a teenager I wanted to be an ad man. I don't know why. Did you have any ad men in your life? Or did you know no, anybody? Of course not. Yeah. No, you I'm know. Guessing that. Well, some, a car broke down, you probably weren't. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. You didn't have any relatives in the business? Or no. Yeah. Uh, no. My basically, my uncles and aunts and all that, they were basically blue-collar. You know, I, I don't know what. I used to see the ads on uh, in Life magazine, and so I was 
it's probably not true, but I always said in my brother's room, he would be looking at dirty magazines and I would be looking at ads in Life magazine and he'd be sticking up naked pictures on the wall and I'd be sticking up ads. But I was, uh, I loved the turn of a phrase. I loved the Volkswagen ads of the 70s and 60s. I, I thought they were incredible and I got it. I just understood. When the first time I saw the ad, how does uh, the Volkswagen, how does the man who drives the snowplow get to the snowplow? And he takes a Volkswagen. I thought that was brilliant, and I wanted to do that. And I, I started writing ads, and I came to Texas Tech. One of the reasons was they did have a course in advertising, and I wanted to study advertising. Do you remember who your professor was for that class? I will never forget him. He, he was a great influence on my life, Dr. Bernie Rosenblatt. I actually have a scholarship here at Tech in memory of Bernie. Bernie was an account guy at YNR. He worked on Monsanto. I'll never forget that. And I always thought I, if Bernie had, had lived to see me become the president of Young and Rubicam and the head of North America, that he would be very proud of me. I love Bernie. And of course, there's Bill Dean in MassCom 130. Who can forget that? <laughs> and Bill Dean is still there. Bill Dean's still he's, teaching he's, MassCom 130. He's, he's, uh... I think he's the longest-serving uh, <laughs> Texas Tech employee. But he okay. still looks the same. Oh, yeah. I saw Dr. Dean, and I'm going, yeah. man, do you ever age? Well, <laughs> it, you know, we all know that in his office there's a there's a portrait of Dorian Gray, Bill Dean, that, that uh, <laughs> is aging. But he he's not. He's just never let us uh, see that. In fact, I, I always tell the, the joke. I'm not sure he appreciates it, but I always tell the joke. That, and he, he's going. He, we haven't interviewed yet, him yet for the show, but we will. Uh, building that uh, one day I'm going to find in the notes there the, a, a little letter written to him by Sam Houston and Stephen Austin <laughs> saying, you know, we, we came up with a slogan for the Texas Revolution. And, and it's, I think everybody should try to recall the, the our friends at the Alamo who perished so so unmercifully. And do you have, do you have a way to make it punchier? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know I, I'm sure they probably, probably pledged five Elton and, and Bill took, got, them out, got their butts out of a crack one time too, which he was great at. That's right. That's right. So, in college, uh, obviously, did, did you, you know, a lot of times I, I, I've noticed that there's a transition in, from high school to college, mm-hmm. and, and I've seen that in, in the, the children of friends. Uh, I assume that'll happen with my kids, that things that they were very happy to listen to mm-hmm. in high school, they suddenly realize are not cool in college, and, mm-hmm. and there's, a, there's an abrupt shift of musical taste. Did that happen to you, or is that, is that, is that something that maybe I'm seeing now, more now than it was Back then? I never had a musical shift, but there are artists that I really came to love in college. I was mentioning uh, Neil Young, the Harvest album. That changed my life. I mean, when I first hear Neil Young playing the harp and starting to sing uh, Heart of Gold, I mean, that's, that sends me back to you know, my days at Texas Tech. I, that's, those were beautiful beautiful times. You know, we'd listen to those albums for until there were no sprockets, there were no, there were no grooves left in those albums. but. I can still hear that harp, and it takes me back to Lubbock in the early 70s. And uh, as I said, I love coming to school here, and some of my best friends are my fraternity brothers, Phi Delta Theta, and uh, my pledge brothers. And, uh, man, we had a good time out here, and the music had a lot to do with it, quite frankly, you know.
again, turning a completely different uh, direction, I guess fast-forwarding as well, another song that you listed was by, again, I wouldn't put Ice Cube and Neil Young together on the same stage. Maybe they've worked <laughs> together, and I don't know, but Ice Cube had a good day. You know what? I was not a big, I'm not a big rap fan, but that song is so beautifully written, and the lyrics are so beautiful. When he talks about... You know, he had a good day because he, nobody, none of his friends got shot with an AK. And you listen to that song about what his life was about. It took me into East L.A., you know, a place I've never been, you know, where you know, it wouldn't be. I really think that is one of the most beautifully well-written songs ever. And uh, he does such a beautiful job. I mean, for a guy that was coming out of N.W.A. and these kind of bands, he was playing in very, very militant music. And he wrote and sang that song to me. It was just... It is pretty eclectic, but I tend to go that direction. But beautiful song. Just waking up in the morning, gotta thank God. I don't know, but today seems kinda odd. No barking from the dog, no small. And mama cooked the breakfast with no harm. I got my grub bone, but didn't dig out. Finally got a call from a girl I wanna dig out. Hooked it up for later as I hit the dope. Thinking, will I live another 24? I gotta go cause I got me a drop top And if I hit the switch, I can make the ass drop Had to stop at a red light Looking in my mirror, not a jacker in sight And everything is alright I got a beat from Kim And she can fuck all night Called up the homies and I'm asking y'all Which part are y'all playing basketball? Get me on the court and I'm troubled Last week, looked around and got a triple-double Freaking niggas every way like MJ I can't believe today was a good day You left college, and what was your first job? My first job was I was a sports writer at the Vernon Daily Record, or the VD as we used to call it. And the sports were local football? Local football, uh, yeah, that's basically it, high school football, stuff like that. It really, uh, there were no jobs in advertising. I mean, it was really a drought in probably 1976. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to get a job, and I learned from a probably one of the biggest pricks in the world, but one of the greatest teachers in the world, my managing editor, Orlin Brewer. And there wasn't a day that he didn't scream at me and call me an idiot, but I learned a lot from Orlin, and I appreciate Orlin very much. Orlin used to take me back in the photo, uh, the dark room, you know, when we were for the photographer work. And I mean, he would scream at me. The problem was that he would stand under the air vent, and everybody in the newsroom could hear him <laughs> dressing me down. How long were you at the paper? I was at the paper for about two years. And I'll drop another name, my uh, good friend and roommate, pledge brother, Bob Duncan, who's now the chancellor and I. We lived together in a two-room apartment, a, a garage apartment in Vernon, Texas. He was farming, and I was working for the paper. And I would bring home $110. We got paid every Friday, and I would make $110. My take-home pay was $110. I would put $90 in my checking account, 10 into savings, and 10 would be for the weekend gas and a, and a little hooch then out in Pumpkin Center, Texas. We'd go out to Pumpkin Center and drink a little beer. That was a Madison Avenue, Broadway. Of, uh, <laughs> Pumpkin Center? Yeah. Oh, man. I, I went out there years later at, uh, with Bob. When uh, his mother passed away, we went out and went to Pumpkin Center just to remember things. And it was not much to it, but it was a good time. You remember those days. When did you enter the ad business? You know, uh, I was at the AJ. I was a sports writer there for about four years and lived here in Lubbock. And uh, one day I just uh, decided I needed to make a change. I, I was getting to, to the point in my career where... I really love newspapering, but uh, there was no money in it, and the, the work the workload was horrible. 
we were working four to four to eleven. I, had, I never had two days in a row off, and I just needed to make a change. So I went into I went to Dallas, uh, started doing some work with the Dallas Times Herald for a short, short time, and I was looking for an ad job. And I'd put together a little portfolio, and basically my portfolio consisted of a couple of ads I wrote here at Texas Tech. One was for Metamucil. It was called How to Get a Square Meal Through a Round Hole. And then I wrote another one. I guess I was in fact with toilet humor because the other one was for a Charmin uh, news, uh, toilet paper, and it, it was uh, the headline I still got was, uh, we know the job's not over till the paperwork's done. Some of that stuff. And so I put that together. So you, you were considered the in-house uh, latrine uh, oh, yeah. expert. Oh, yeah. You yeah. had a... Starting at the bottom. <laughs> Starting at the bottom. And uh, I never did any uh, ads for urinal biscuits, but I probably could add, you know, <laughs> take a bite out of this. So I got a little job. Also in my portfolio were country and western song lyrics that I'd written. I've always enjoyed writing songs. I've never had one. I did have one recorded that was played in the Republican National Convention in Florida during the campaign. It was called I Built It. It was about a, it was a throwback to the President Obama's statement that, you know, you didn't build that. Well, I wrote a song with Larry Bastian, and it's sung by a Texas Tech alumni, uh, Lane Turner, at the Republican National Convention. It was called uh, I Built It. So I put that little portfolio together, and uh, so I had a man that recognized I did have a little talent for being a writer, and I could, particularly the country and western one-liners that I'd thrown in there. They were never songs. They were just one-liners. So shooting a commercial in the days of film before mm-hmm. the Internet, before yeah. television. Before digital. You were using what kind of film? 35. 35. So it's the same film that movies were being yes. made on. Yeah, we uh, if we same really same cameras. If we, yeah, exactly. I mean, these uh, if we really need to save money, we'd use sixteen. But mostly it was all shot on thirty-five. And I mean, these were it's like Joe Pitka. He was just honored in Cannes as the greatest uh, commercial director of all time and cameraman. His film was beautiful. I mean, I asked him one time, "Why is your film so beautiful?" And others guys aren't. You got the same camera. And he says, "Why is your copy so good?" Everybody's got a typewriter. And uh, I heard from Joe yesterday and spent some time with him recently. And uh, I tell you, that those are great filmmakers. And, you know, Joe has now had to go to digital. I mean, just because there's, you, know, you can't get processed anymore. They're shooting movies on, you know, the red camera and things like that. Everything's changed, driven the cost down and I think some in some aspects the quality down. I worked with some of the great filmmakers. I mean, Ridley Scott, Joe Pitka, Leslie Dector, Michael Bay. And quite David a number, of, you mentioned Ridley Scott and Michael Bay, and a number of these people, Tony Scott, his late brother, mm-hmm. started out in commercial. They all started out. Yeah. David, I yeah. did one of David Fincher's first commercials for uh, Pepsi International. Director of Seven. And, oh, yeah. yeah. He's a good guy. And, you know, a lot of these guys still, as a bread and butter, still shoot. I mean, Ridley Scott still shoots commercials. When I was at Leo Burnett, he used to shoot the Marlboro commercials, you know, done. Dun, 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 you know, and man, these things would like. After you saw they two were minutes, mini westerns. They were mini yeah. westerns, and once you saw that, and that cowboy reached in the fire and pulled out a twig and fired up a Marlboro, man, you wanted to fire up a Marlboro. And I could see why the federal government has banned advertising for it's it making it look good. I mean, Ridley Scott was amazing in this stuff, and Peter Smiley, you go on and on and on. I mean, these are great filmmakers I worked with. One of the songs that you also mentioned was uh, one that, that songs which evoked a certain good feelings of good times, that, which were originally commercial, mm-hmm. I mean, not commercial songs, they were originally popular songs, are then 20 years later they become commercial songs mm-hmm. because people are recounting the good feelings of their youth. Mm-hmm. And one, the most famous one was for Heinz Ketchup, Anticipation by Carly Simon. You know what? I remember seeing that, and it wasn't 20 years. It was a new song that uh, Carly Simon just came out with. And uh, I saw that on TV, 
and uh, it's probably, I thought it was brilliant. I'd never seen anything like it. Of course, it's used all the time now. You take a popular song and put some film against it. But at that time, what a great idea. Heinz Ketchup was slow. You couldn't cut, you know, that was the whole thing about their positioning of that brand is it was slow. And so for 30 seconds, maybe even a minute, I don't recall, they would show the ketchup were just slowly coming out of that yeah. bottle and landing on a hot dog. And to Carly Simon's song, Anticipation, you're making me wait. We can never know about the days to come. But we think about them. You had to say things in images that sometimes you couldn't say in words. Well, of course, you know, I ran McDonald's for about 11 years. What you have to do is you can't describe. There were key words we always had to use. They called them drill drivers out in Oak Brook that we had to use to describe a Big Mac or quarter pound. Drill cheese. drivers. Drill drivers. And a drill driver was a, was a, you know, hot, delicious Big Mac or two all beef patties. They had to be used in there. But it's all about a taste appeal. And we would spend hours and hours shooting ta- what we call tabletop advertising, uh, food advertising, to make that product look so unbelievably tasty. We couldn't describe that. I mean, hot, delicious, that's just... But when you actually see that steam coming off that burger when it's being laid on the... And, and topped with a set all sesame seed bun, I mean, it's beautiful. We did a beautiful job on that stuff. You know, McDonald's was very str- stringent on their, on their stylists and stuff. They had to be made like they were being made in a store. I mean, they didn't cheat. The only thing you probably cheat on sometimes, you'd shove the burger, the meat, a little bit further up in the, uh, the sandwich and make it look like there's more meat in it. But, you know, we never really cheated. They just wouldn't put up with it. They used the same food stylist for years and we tried to make it as appetizingly appealing as possible. You're very famous for your commercial work, but you're equally famous for your work in politics. How did you make the transition in a major campaign? Well, advertising agencies historically don't do that anymore. Uh, they don't want to piss off a client, quite frankly, that's maybe a Democrat or a Republican, so they sort of take the middle ground and stay out of it. I was brought in, and my first political campaign, so to speak, was in 2000. Uh, I was approached by Mark McKinnon, Carl Rove, and Stuart Stevens to work on the Bush campaign. And what they wanted me to do was try finding conservative Republicans on Madison Avenue and who are Texan. I won. And uh, <laughs> I think I was the they only They narrowed one. it down to they you. They narrowed it down to one, me. And uh, I was very excited to work for uh, Governor Bush at that time. So that was my first. And uh, I tried to put a whole, we called ourselves the Park Avenue Posse because I lived on Park Avenue at the time and uh, put together a group of uh, Republicans. I was turned down by basically every creative director, ad guy in New York. They did not want to work for a Republican. That was my first soiree into, the, into that world. And then uh, my next up. Uh, I was now in the barrel of 2012 with Governor Romney when I moved to 
Boston. When you're working with any particular candidate, your first decision is like, who are they? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is somebody that the voters should get to know, mm-hmm. you want to tell their story. I don't think we did that very well in the Romney campaign. I don't think we defined Governor Romney in a, in a, a way. I did bring in one of the greatest uh, filmmakers, a guy named Jim Gardner, to do that, and we never produced those ads. The, the films were shot. We did edit it. Worked with a great art director named James Dalthorpe. The Romney campaign was more about, they would call it a referendum. Don't, it's not that you're voting. Don't vote for Governor Romney. Vote against oh, President Obama. Now, with Bush, there was the issue of establishing who Bush was Mm -hmm. and the difference between him and his father, Mm -hmm. some of the questions about his background, his life. You know, he's had some issues. Mm -hmm. So as I recall, there were quite a number of defining who he was ads for his presidential campaign. You know, uh, uh, the thing I liked about uh, President Bush was he was such a likable good man. And so— And you wanted to tell that. We had to tell that because he was uh, facing an incumbent vice president who had really never been snarled in any kind of uh, controversy, even though he he, he distanced himself really well from President Clinton, who was, a, I think, a wonderful man. But um, I remember we were sitting in a strategy meeting one time, and he, he turned to me and said, well, so what's our strategy, ad man? How are we going to do this? And I said, uh, well, my first reaction is called, uh, things are great, vote for change. Because we were going through, uh, I mean, the, the 90s was, you know, it was going strong. So there was no reason to vote against him. As we talked, I told him, uh, if we could get you in front of every man, woman, and child in America, and you can knock on their door and meet them, you'll get the vote. Al Gore will not, because he was such a cold man. But George Bush, despite all of his failings or whatever, as president, I think he did a good job. He's a very, very likable, good man. And uh, I think he surrounded himself with not a lot of good people, quite frankly. Now, for the Romney campaign, you felt strongly that they should have done more defining of the candidate as a good person. Well, you know what? I, they, were, they brought me in as a, as a brand specialist. You know, I've built some of the biggest brands. But you have to stay on strategy. you got to stay on brand. Who is it? And we didn't, we didn't move away from that. McDonald's is about a family place. And Sony was about innovation. I mean, I fought very hard to... Uh, to define Governor Romney. He's a good man. He's a likable. He's, you know, he's not approachable, but he's likable. And he's a very good family man. And, he, and I've never met anybody in my life that loves his country as much as he does. And he really thought he would, you know, physically he was a great conservative. I mean, he was, I think he would have made a great president. But for some reason, uh, we had to spend more time uh, telling about the downfalls of the Obama administration than building uh, Governor Romney up. And uh, I think it was a mistake. In fact, he mentioned that in his documentary, Mitt, that uh, we did not define him correctly. That really bothered me. That threw me into a funk. Right after I saw that documentary, I really, really was... But you had been advocating in the campaign. Yes, I was. To do that. Mm -hmm. But you got to understand, David, political consultants don't understand brand. They understand attack like a, a, a mad dog. They like to destroy more than they like to build up. And that's, some, that's one of the reasons I'll probably never do politics again unless uh, I had more say in the final outcome of, a, of an election. I don't want to attack. These are good men. I, when you spend uh, hours a day in a dark room writing negative advertising, it, it affects you tremendously. And it affected me tremendously. I was very, very, I'd say, f***ed up in the head when I came back from that campaign because of what I, some of the things we did. I was not proud of. And that's politics today. Yes, it is. And I think politics today has got to change the advertising. It's like my mother said, I don't know who to believe. I watch an ad and, you know, he's this, he's this, he's this. She doesn't know who to believe. And I think one of the things I, in the campaign when we were in the uh, primaries, I thought, I thought uh, Ron Paul did a great job. Ron Paul and the Libertarians said he was, his advertising was brilliant. And I don't know if anybody ever saw it, but it was really well done, well produced. And I would used to tell Stuart and... The people back at our campaign, man, this is the kind of advertising we need to do. 
I mean, he, he took some shots at, you know, particularly uh, Newt Gingrich during that campaign, but his advertising was brilliant. Also defined who he was. Defined very much who he was. One of the things I think we made a mistake with on the, on the Romney campaign is, you know, he kept coming out and talking. He's against Obamacare, but he never told us why. I mean, we look now and, and you look back on the, what we should have done. You were going to lose your doctor. You were going to lose your policy. I mean, we didn't, we never went into that. It just looked like he was going to throw it out for, other than, for the only reason that, uh, you know, the president put it into place. It wasn't going to work. I mean, sent enough meetings, listened to him talk about, you know, the, fi- the problems with Obamacare. And um, I don't think we really defined that issue very well. Who, who would have to call you now for you to say yes to another presidential campaign? As a Republican, what would they have to promise you. <laughs> uh, you know what? If I knew we had a good team around us, I really—I spent a lot of time with Bob Portman, Senator Portman, out of Ohio. I think he's a good man. I don't think he'll run right now. Um, I don't know who's going to come up. I'm really not interested. Uh, David, on that campaign, I—I I had to spend a year of my life in Boston. It—it—I it, it, came back as a, you know, really, really not very nice guy. I mean quite frankly. And then from that campaign, and uh, I stepped on the scale the day I got back, and I weighed 299.5 pounds. For over a year, all I ate was Dunkin' Donut for breakfast, Subway for lunch, and Domino's Pizza because the governor owned three of those places, and they were always bringing that kind of food in. And I gained a tremendous amount of weight. And right now I'm down to 219 pounds. I've lost 80, over 80 pounds that crap back you know but it's so stressful i mean people until you're in that everything you do everything is scrutinized i did a beautiful film when i first got there about people who suffered under the obama administration and i shot this film in uh ohio i believe no it wasn't it was in iowa with a great filmmaker jim hanan and uh came back and found these wonderful stories about you know people who are really suffering it went up on the the web and not 10 minutes later some of the most vile comments. We were talking about that earlier. We're coming up about these people, about being losers or drunks or whatever. They, they, they weren't either. They were people who were struggling. People were hiding behind the Internet and taking some real shots. Politico, these kind of magazines that all they want to do is write negative stuff. I'm tired of negativity. When you live in that world of politics, you live in negativity. I want to live in be a very positive person. If I could meet a candidate that would want to go out and be a positive and tell you this is who I am, this is what I want to do without taking a shot at somebody else, I would consider working for them. Well, I think the country could use someone like that, too. I do, too. I, you know, who's that going to be? We'll find out in about two more years. Your final song is, again, a, a big change, uh, Kid Rock. <laughs> Kid Rock. Kid Rock. He would always introduce uh, Governor Romney with that song, about It's About America. Well, thank you very much for coming today, Ferg, and, and we will end on... Uh, the, the upbeat notes of Kid Rock, who, as I understand, has declared he is running for the presidential uh, hey, Republican. He's got the song ready. I mean, we must, I see your phone vibrating right now. I yeah, think he's calling it's, it's you. Kid Rock. And, uh, or Donald Tell Trump. his story. <laughs> I would love to, man. I'd love to work for somebody like Kid Rock. But it's a, the song that's on here is you asked me if there's a song about a political campaign. And, man, you can go to a rally without hearing Kid Rock. And the last rally we, were t- we attended was in New Hampshire the night before the election. Kid Rock came out. And, man, guy he rocked it and this was a song that he played to bring governor romney onto the stage thank you very much ferg thank you david texas tech get those guns up man take care sir thank Thank you you, sir It's